Greetings. This is The Filter with Matt Asher. My guest today is Pete Quinones. Pete is managing editor of the Libertarian Institute and creator of a new documentary called The Monopoly on Violence. Pete hosts the Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast and is part of the Unloose the Goose podcast, along with several others, including previous Filter guest, Vin Armani. Pete, welcome to The Filter. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. It's great to have you here. Our topic for the conversation is collapse and collapsitarianism, and we'll get into a definition of that shortly. But before we get there, I want to acknowledge that while uh, all unsustainable things must come to an end, and then while history is full of complex civilizations that have disintegrated and literally sunken into the dust, it's also possible to overestimate the threat of collapse at any given moment. When I look around the American empire right now, I see an overextended, economically suicidal, fiscally insane, sharply divided country that's descending into warring tribes. I'm sure you see many of those same things and even more reasons for collapse. But is there a case to be made that our perceptions are misleading us, that our view is skewed by a hyper-awareness of the problems? Could it be the case that while eventual collapse is inevitable, the amount of ruin America can sustain is still much higher, maybe even by an order of magnitude, and that momentum and some level of adaptation could keep things going for years or even decades to come? Sure. they. <laughs> I think if they've proven anything, they, they've proven that they can make this last for a long time. They have. I mean, Ron Paul and people like that. I mean, Murray Rothbard was talking about how it should have all fallen apart by now. And they just seem to make it go boom, bust cycle after boom, bust cycle. You can make the argument in 2008 that if they would have just let it everything fail, we'd be a lot better off right now. But they don't. And they, they've got this mechanism where they can keep propping it up and propping it up, propping it up. Uh, I... <laughs> I used to be more sympathetic to the collapsitarian view. Maybe maybe you could tell us, so what is the collapsitarian view? The collapsitarian view is the fact that this is all going to collapse, and when it collapses, it's not going to be pretty. I know I've had collapsitarians on my podcast, Free Man Beyond the Wall, who they're basically moved into neighborhoods and they, are, they communicate with their neighbors. They form little cadres, and they know that they can rely on each other if it gets to the point where groups from the city start threatening people outside of the city. It seems like I've heard that recently. But the reason that this would happen is because the dollar collapsed and everything collapsed and society in some way has broken down. I can see it. I, I can see why you can look at that, especially with everything that's happened, especially since the last weekend in May with uh, George Floyd and these protests slash riots slash looting. What's happening right now is unprecedented. We've never seen anything like this before. I mean, we've seen rioting in the streets. We've seen anti-war protests. We've seen protests at political presidential conventions. But what the government has done with lockdowns, sheltering in place making people wear masks in public, 
pitting people against each other, which is their greatest success in the history in the history of this country, is being able to have two groups warring against each other. So they're not really looking at who the problem is, being the government. I think we're in times where you would have to ask if collapse wasn't going to happen on a grand scale, could it happen in certain localities? And I think we're already seeing that. I mean, is that what we're seeing right now in Portland? Is this collapse at a local level? No, that's more of a test. This is more of a test. I mean, Portland's not going to collapse. The city's not going to go turn into a hellscape. This is politics, as far as I'm concerned, in my opinion. But if you look at towns like Camden, New Jersey, Detroit, these are examples of collapsitarian locations that have been, I mean, we're talking about decades in the making. I mean, no one wants to go in Camden. I heard Dave Smith talk recently about driving through they would purposely drive through Camden on the, from New York on their way to Philadelphia, and they said it was almost like a rush because you felt like you were almost in a war zone. And I know people who've actually lived in inner city Detroit where there's no police, where it is just basically a war zone. I'm not going to use the term anarchy. To me, anarchy is positive, but the common usage of the term is chaos. But I, I mean, I know people who've gone into inner city Detroit to escape the law, they're wanted somewhere and they know the police just won't go in there looking for them. So we've seen collapse. Now, in my opinion, what we see in Seattle, and what we see in Portland, it's either politics because it's an election year and they don't want Trump to get reelected or it's some kind of test to see how people are going to react to go a little conspiratorial for more of a demand of like a national police force versus a local police force. I think it's really hard to pin down what we're seeing right now. But as far as collapsitarianism goes on a grand scale, I just don't see it happening. If the dollar failed tomorrow, uh, they'd have something to immediately put in its place and people would be begging for it, just like they're going to be begging for a, a vaccine at this point. I think we're at a time where the collapse is not happening physically, but it's happening mentally. It's like Vin Armani says, he says, this is the dim age. It's not a dark age. It's a dim age. I mean, you you have the Library of Alexandria on your phone. You can learn anything you want. I mean, you can get, I think Yale has their whole curriculum. MIT has their whole curriculum online. You can learn anything. But when it comes to reason, logic, rhetoric, the trivium, the classic trivium, there's nothing there. Uh, Richard Grove said on my show, an episode that I dropped yesterday, he said that literacy is a form of slavery if you don't have critical thinking. And certainly that's not so much pushed right now in the educational institutes. I think one aspect of a collapsitarianism is a recognition that this is happening or the belief that it's happening. Another aspect of it might be a feeling that this is something that we should cheer on or accelerate or that we should, I guess to use the a common phrase, we should lean into the collapse in some way. And I do see to some extent the case for that, but and maybe I'll make that, but I wonder what your thoughts are on the idea of not just accepting that collapse is inevitable, but in some sense either bringing it about or trying to lean in and influence the way in which the collapse happens. So you're talking about what a lot of people would term accelerationism? 
Sure. Okay. A year, a year and a half ago, yeah, I probably would have been down with that. I've read Samuel Edward Conkin's works like four or five years ago. I was talking with my wife about this last night. Is I remember when she bought me Conkin's books. I asked him for Christmas one year, and she saw. She's like, "You read them like four or five years ago." I'm like, "Yeah, but I, I wasn't ready. I, I wasn't ready to understand exactly what he was saying." So back when all the COVID nineteen stuff started, and I realized by talking to Vin Armani, uh, especially talking to Vin Armani and Richard Grove that this was going to be used as a paradigm changer, as a shift of some sort into even more technocratic than the direction we were going. I decided to break out my Konkin books again and start reading. And then I read the the work of fiction by James Neil Shulman, uh, J. Neil Shulman, Alongside Night, which is like an agorist, Atlas Shrugged. And when I read what what was going on in there, the thoughts that they had painted in fiction, and then I read New Libertarian Manifesto and, and, and Agoras Primer, I, I changed my mind about collapsitarianism in that I think in order to survive, in order to have liberty when the state starts falling apart, and in many ways I think the state is falling apart already, uh, we can talk about that. We're going to have to have alternatives already built. And that's what agorism talks about. It talks about starting production privately, starting black market and gray market production and everything from food production to anything. But the pinnacle is when we have security agencies that not only protect us from criminals, protect us from the state, but I repeat myself that we will have protection agencies that will protect us from the violence of the state. And that's when we know that basically the the state has lost its power. And right now where we have the majority of services either being run by the state or state approved industries and companies, you're going to have it go in the opposite direction so that when you look at society, you'll see pockets of statism here and there. And I think that can be collapsitarian too, but it doesn't have to be the negative, the almost Mad Max kind of way that some people who call themselves collapsitarians are painting it. I think that we can have all of the industries set up to take care of our needs and our wants, and then the state just basically loses all of its power. So if I were to kind of summarize that view or the view against collapsitarianism or acceleration, um, I'd say that that is that we as individuals and as groups need time to set up alternate structures and a slow decline gives us that time. The counter argument might be that a slow decline also gives the state an opportunity to put in place certain forms of tyranny in the boiling of the frog way, where bit by bit they ratchet up control and we end up with a situation like what you have in China, where you have a highly controlling technocracy and maybe you have a certain level of free market activity on the ground, but everything is very closely managed and controlled. Whereas if you had a more violent collapse into chaos, then there might not be time for the state, especially a state that went bankrupt very quickly 
and lost its power and empire very quickly, it might not have time to entrench in the same way. I, I'm not sure which side of that I believe, or maybe both of those things are partly true. What do you think? I think the concern of a technocratic China-like state growing up while everything is dying is a good concern. But there's one thing that China doesn't have that we have, and that's getting close to a billion guns. And a billion guns in the hands of a populace. I'm not one of those people who thinks that I can't believe that people haven't picked up guns against the government yet, because I understand government schooling, the Prussian model. Um, I understand that they've designed a system through inflation and through the Federal Reserve that keeps people busy and so busy that they just don't have time to do that. But if they push it too far, there are going to be pockets of this country, especially in the South and especially in the Midwest, Montana, places like that, that are just going to be like, nope, it's not going to happen. I suppose in terms of individual pockets, then perhaps that's true. I may have thought that the number of guns in this country would be a deterrence to tyranny before, but many of the governors decided they had the right to effectively lock people who'd committed no crime in their homes for very long periods, and nobody busted out of there with their guns and started you know, assaulting federal officers or governors or anything like that. There was a minor protest in Michigan of a group of armed people who temporarily hung out at the, I think, the Capitol building there. But other than that, all of those guns, you know, I don't know that they play as big a role as some people think they do in preventing the government from establishing something like an order of total control. I mean, you buried the lead. I mean, it's not like they just told people stay home. They told people stay home or you're going to die. And you're going to die from an invisible enemy and an enemy that you can't see. And fear is a big, big motivator. I just don't know how long they can let that play out. I mean, I do think there's going to be a vaccine. And I do think there's going to come a point where it's going to be like, all right, you got to get this vaccine. And, pe and there are going to be a lot of people who are going to push back. I think a lot more than people realize uh, I think this is radicalizing a lot of people. I think a lot of people aren't saying anything right now because they're just trying to stay off the radar, trying to, you know, they have they have family. I think a lot of people aren't prepared to tell their kids yet how evil the government is. A lot of people with their kids are just not honest with them. I mean, I don't know what it's like in other states. I'm in Georgia, and Georgia was one of the first states to reopen most of the lockdowns were on the county level here. Kemp ordered a two-week lockdown in April, and I mean, that was only after insane political pressure. And he was just like, all right, two weeks, two weeks, two weeks. And really nothing got locked down. People were out doing stuff. There were people who stayed at home, sure. But a lot of people were just staying at home, I think, because they were working from home, people who were allowed to work from home. And let me not speak for other parts of the country. But it really seems to me like here, at least from what I've experienced through all this, being in one of the better states through all of this, I don't see them being able to like do another lockdown here. And I really think if it comes down to like a vaccine or something like that, Georgia is going to be one of the places where you're going to see um, large pockets of people being like, that ain't going to happen. Again, I might have 
thought that, that there would be more resistance about the vaccine thing. But, or let me put this another way. What I've seen over the arc here of 20 plus years is a lot of people who claim to be pro-liberty who say, this is the line, you can't cross it, and then it gets crossed. And then there's another line, and then it gets crossed. I, one of the things I, I like to say is that the problem with slippery slopes is that sooner or later they turn into free fall. And I think that something like this has happened. And once free fall happens, it's not so clear how you can come back and say, okay, well, this is the line. By the time you've said that, the mob, in this case, often literal mobs, have driven past the line you drew in the sand and trampled you, and they're on to the next objective. I get what you're saying. And I said on a recent episode that one of the ways I think that they're training people for the vaccine is by making them wear the mask that especially in Georgia if you're wearing a mask when it's 100 degrees outside through the summer months and then S September comes around and they're like here's the vaccine if you take the vaccine you don't have to wear the mask anymore I mean that's just a perfect psyop it's a perfect plan maybe I'm being naive but I mean I, there's some hope I have to hold on to there there are going to be pockets that are going to say no I mean, we've seen it. We, we've seen certain pockets say no. There are certain parts of the country right now where people aren't wearing masks and people aren't really worried about this. They're going going about their lives. And for the most part here in Georgia, most people wouldn't be wearing masks here if it wasn't mandated for like grocery store. You know, grocery stores are mandating it. I went to three different grocery stores today and all three of them were mandating if you, if you had to wear a mask if you were going to shop. So... Yeah, I'm I'm holding out hope, but I can't be as pessimistic as you are. I mean, you're you've I'm not you, so sure I'm super pessimistic. I guess I would say this that I'm pessimistic about certain scenarios playing out. I think that a different kind of strategy is needed. I enjoy what you guys are doing on the Unloose the Goose podcast in terms of talking about practical strategies um, at a local level here whenever possible. I go to places where they don't require masks, uh, not because I think masks are necessarily a bad thing, but because at this point, I see those kind of actions as essentially like peeing in the pool of liberty. They're just not helping. And especially now, like on a practical level, when here where, where I live in Ontario, the curve has been completely flattened. We're down near the tail end of things. The idea that now would be a good time to enforce masks seems insane to me. But as I say, I do see some ways forward, and I'm not completely pessimistic about this, but let me try a different approach in terms of making the case for accelerating some kind of collapse. And that's that there's a difference between uncertainty and chaos. And one of them is much easier, in my view, to live with than the other. Chaos, you can get into the rhythm of it. Or think about a movie like I Am Legend. And Will Smith lives in a world of chaos most of the time. You know, he's got ravaging bands of zombies at night. The streets are completely taken over by wildlife. He's had to redo his life around the chaos of the collapsed city. But as far as that goes, he's okay. The thing that's really messing with his mind is the uncertainty about whether he can come up with a cure, which is what he's trying to do for the zombie infection that's going around, or the uncertainty about whether other human beings have survived. So 
I suppose the argument here would be that if things are plunged quickly into chaos, then you might be able to find your way out of chaos. But to put people in a state of perpetual uncertainty, which is what the, how long will the lockdowns last? You know, what's the next move in this tyrannical thing? When will the dollar collapse? When will the empire finally have to pull back? Those higher level uncertainties, I think, are much more destructive to social cohesion. And they're much harder to navigate than just figuring, okay, the city is covered with wildlife. I just need to grab my gun and my dog and go out and go hunting, right? Does that make sense? Or is it a bad analogy? I don't know if it's a bad analogy or not, but a free market would be chaos, but that would be a positive thing. Bob Murphy's written a book, Chaos Theory. Mises talked about chaos, and they were talking about it in a positive Uncertainty, yeah. I mean, you could, they could keep uncertainty going on for months and even years. I mean, Rahm Emanuel's brother was talking about 18 months lockdown right from the start of this. I mean, I, I heard that and, and I didn't worry about it. I'm like, that's just ridiculous. There's no way they're going to be able to pull that off. That will get people shooting um, 18 months. They seem to have really done a good job of designing the control that they're trying to put in place right now because just a little bit here and a little bit there you're gonna have to wear a muzzle everyone sounds like kenny from south park there's a lot of ways that this could go i don't know that just everything collapsing at once is going to be best i mean th there's two kinds of chaos the collapsitarian chaos is it's not going to be good. Historically, it certainly isn't. It, it, when you look at the history of collapsed states, it's not usually a, a move into a nicer environment. Yeah, I don't think you're going to have an anarcho-capitalist society um, or a voluntary society rise up out of that because people will be so panicked, they'll just be begging for security from anyone who will give it. And it'll just be the same government. They'll just change things. Probably the most likely thing that would happen, and you're seeing it right now, is the dollar would collapse. I mean, gold is over 1900 and the dollar is just dropping. I think the last I looked this week, the dollar was at 86 cents to the euro. And just a, like a month and a half ago, it was at 91 cents. That five cents is a huge drop when it comes to the dollar. So if you lose the dollar, that would be the one collapse that I think would cause people the most panic. But I mean, when I first became aware of libertarianism and started reading Rothbard and Mises in 2009, I, I thought on my own, just driving in my car one day, if the dollar collapsed tomorrow, I guarantee you they have something waiting to replace it. And what they would replace it with, I, mean, I think it's obvious to anyone who's paying attention, is that it'd be some kind of digital currency. Right. That certainly would make sense from the perspective of a state because it gives you the ultimate control over how who gets money when, what they can use it for, right. how it gets allocated. I think actually the mini experiment that's happening right now, both in the US and in Canada with effectively a UBI from, you know, from the perspective of a, a state that might want to put people on that kind of a measured drip of income. It's a bridge towards distributing money electronically to everyone and then beginning to call that not a dollar, but a digital dollar. Yeah. 
I said right from the start of this is once they started talking about the twelve hundred dollars to Trump bucks and then the unemployment six hundred and in most cases the state was given three hundred. So people there were a great many people who were getting free money every week, way more than what they make on a weekly basis. Uh, I said right from the start that this was just warming people up for UBI and this whole thing is warming people up for universal health care. I mean, you guys have had that up there forever. So I know it's become an institution. It's almost like guns here. It is. Though <laughs> I, I should say for listeners who haven't heard some of the casts where I've talked about my own biography, I, I lived in the States for most of my life, spent some time in South America and then moved here to Canada about a dozen years ago. And when people who are on the pro-capitalism, pro-liberty bent, think about Canada, they think about, oh, socialized medicine. And it is true that they have that here. And I'd say that overall, the medical system is about as, as mediocre as it is in the States, just in different ways here. Um, because of course, in the States, it's not a, a free market system of, of medical care. But beyond that, that's just one piece of the overall puzzle of government interventionalism and the overall amount of government interfering in the economy, at least until the COVID lockdowns began, was actually a lot less here in Canada at the time I moved up here. Now everything is in flux and it's hard to say where things will shake out. And in fact, that's, I suppose, one of the most interesting things here is to look and have this opportunity to see which are the places in this time of uncertainty that are going to be strong about holding line for individual freedoms. And it's not so clear that there are those, at least at the level of a, an entire country. Sweden, of course, didn't lock down, but that wasn't necessarily out of a great commitment to individual liberty and freedom. It was somewhat accidental, as was the case in Japan. And I talked to James Corbett on one of the episodes of The Filter about how it is that Japan didn't lock down. And part of that is their constitution. And part of it is the accident of having the Olympic Games as a possibility and therefore not wanting to recognize the problem early on until they had to, and then they canceled the games. But at that point, the momentum against locking down had been somewhat locked in. But beyond that, it's not clear that there are any of these larger governmental units around the world that are in the face of this really holding the line against tyranny, in effect. Do you see any green shoots in any parts of the world? I think anywhere you'd go would have to be someplace where the government was weak, like Mexico or someplace like that. Uh, Vin Armani's gone to Saipan, and he said that he thinks it's probably as close to minarchism as he's ever seen, but it is part of the United States, and it seems to have been internationally orchestrated. I don't think that that's I mean, this sounds like a conspiracy theory, but as all these countries were doing the exact same thing, I mean, I guess you could argue they were all following the WHO recommendations or, um, you know, American CDC. Yeah, you could just decide that states inherently want power, and this was a great opportunity. And I think that it is the case that this is, and this is something that Armani has talked about, it's a, a moment of mob rule. And early on in the time of fear at the beginning, uh, there was a lot of pressure coming from the bottom, from groups of people to do something. And that particular pressure manifested itself into this 
uh, push for the particular solution that was held out there, that if we just lock down, that everything will go away. And people collectively and in a mob kind of mentality, in my view, not necessarily structured from above, although I know some people believe that, but that they just, the fear and the moment of mass um, a sense hysteria pushed people to demand a response, and this was the response that was on the table. And any particular state is going to be perfectly happy with a solution that their population is pushing for that also has the side effect of giving them a high degree of additional power. In our documentary, we were talking about anarchy, and um, Stefan Kinsella and Ryan McMakin both brought up the idea of international law, how you have 200 sovereigns who operate ostensibly separate from each other. And that seems to have definitely been lost in the last six to seven months is they're all just in lockstep with each other. Scott Horton refers to himself back in the 90s as a new world order kook. And if you still believe in that kind of new world order, you have to look at this and it would definitely make you insane and be able to go, look, look, see, I told you, I told you. No, I mean, I just don't see how this many countries could all be doing the same thing. But as far as like places to go to get away from this, I think that anybody who you know really wants to fight this is just really going to have to make their stand wherever they are. And what we're trying to do with like Unloose the Goose is try to get people at least into digital groups but really get them into territorial groups of like-minded people you know, who can get together and provide safety in numbers. I think that is ultimately the solution and um, first organizing digitally and then moving that into the real world. And I think that at some point what's going to have to happen, and this is partly why I'm not completely pessimistic about this, is that I think that at some point, some of these groups are going to go, uh, well, okay, so the government is a monopoly on violence. It's a mafia. We recognize that. How about instead of fighting against that, we just accept that and decide, yes, government's always going to be there, or at least for the foreseeable future. And its nature is to be a mafia or a protection racket. So we accept that. And then we negotiate terms with one of those mafias uh, while we're still somewhat free to move around the world. So we go to a government, some unit at some level and say, look, we have this money and we have this skill to bring in, but in return, here's what we want. We want you to protect us from other governments and we want a high level of autonomy uh, and some kind of extreme poison pill provisions so that if that governmental entity goes Hong Kong on us, then it will kill them too. And I'm not sure exactly what that would look like, but I think that the governments may not be as much in lockstep as they seem right now, and that we're seeing actually the triumph of a certain kind of anti-globalism that might open the door for this kind of negotiation with a particular level of government, especially in a situation of failed or failing states. I mean, I hope you're right. Yeah, I'm going to keep my eye out and see what other governments are doing. I know the, the guy who runs Belarus has really been middle finger to everybody who's trying to um, force him to lock everything down and things like that. He seems to be really 
you know, you talked about how Sweden didn't do it out of some kind of liberty thing. I think this guy didn't do it just because he doesn't want to be told what to do. He, he's just like a psychopath. And he's just like, I, I'm not, I don't want to be told what to do by you people. Go screw yourselves. That's a little bit the situation in Brazil as well. Oh, yeah. Well, that, yeah uh, Bolsonaro is a bit of a- That, that guy's a maniac. Nut case. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's a lunatic. Thankfully, I, I think the only reason why you're not seeing full-on- Pinochet out of him is because he's surrounded by people who I think he's surrounded himself with some people who have libertarian beliefs. I know that you know, there are some Chicago whites that are around him as far as economics goes, but that situation could go bad very quickly. And I don't know, maybe it has and they're suppressing stuff, but I haven't heard anything. And um, I think Brazilians would tell us because uh, there's a lot of liber a lot of libertarians in Brazil. At this point, it's wait and see with preparation. That's the key, is you have to be prepared for the worst and what's coming. And when I say that, I mean anything. I mean, I still wouldn't count out food shortages and supplies. I wrote an article about that recently, about even becoming friendly with like an independent grocery store, someone who owns it just in case things get bad. That person would probably be holding stuff back for themselves. And you know, if you were friendly with him, he might be able to supply you with stuff that you need. I think the next big thing we're going to see is if they rush a vaccine to market within the next few months. You know, Richard Grove thinks that it's going to be out by September and you're going to have to keep an app on your phone, which they may want you to do. You're going to have to wear like almost like a medical bracelet or something like that. So we'll see what happens. I mean, we'll yeah, when you when you see talk of that, then it makes me start to think that the future is a Chinese sort of authoritarian technocracy future that we're heading to. Though I also think it's possible, especially now with the strong push on the part of certain factions of the progressive left for violence and straight up communism, that we see a reaction to that that comes in a Pinochet type form. So that's not completely off the table too. It's interesting to note that as horrific as the Pinochet situation was, it did in that case lead in the long term or I guess the medium term to a better society, even though those kind of rise of authoritarian leaders often doesn't. But, you know, that's on the table too as a possible future. I think unfortunately something like South Africa is a possible future as well, where you have a small group of elites and highly wealthy people who are boarded up behind razor wire fence with giant dogs, and every neighborhood has become its own kind of enclave. And then there's a vast and semi-lawless perimeter around that where perhaps there's a level of freedom, but it's certainly a violent situation. Among the scenarios, among the possibilities, South Africa going the way of China, going the way of Chile in terms of a Pinochet, what are the possibilities that we end up with a civil war? I don't know where that would happen. I mean, is it going to happen in New York City? Probably not. Is it going to happen in Philly? maybe pockets, maybe you'd have, you know, like in New York, you have the Howard Beach riots back in the late 80s, or if it was the early 90s, I can't remember, I left New York before that. You've seen pockets of stuff in Philly, but really, who's going to be fighting against who? 
What about in the partisan sense, right? I mean, you do have an America that's divided where it seems like increasingly half of the people hate half of the other people for partisan tribal allegiance reasons. Well, you have to you you also said civil war and when I when I hear civil war, I I think rifles and guns. I'm not suggesting that people are going to come out with rifles and guns and start shooting their neighbors at any particular moment. I don't think that if we had a civil war in the states that it would look anything at all like the one that happened before. Uh it would be a very different one. But at the same time, I could definitely see a scenario where a group of people says, all of those people in this other state hate us. Why do we want to be in a union with them? And some people object to the idea of secession, and then we're off to the races. When you start talking about states or locales that may decide to secede from the quote-unquote union, yeah, then I could see definite fighting. I mean, it's going to be the locale against either the state or it's going to be the state against the national government. I don't know what that would look like. Would it be the National Guard of a state against the US military? I don't know what the purpose of Seattle letting uh Chaz happen was. You don't think it was just fear on the part of the people in power that they were just simply afraid to push back against it? Oh no, I'm I'm more no, I know people who went down there. I spoke to to ANCAPs who went down there, and they said if the police wanted to, they could come in here and they could take this back in five minutes. Well, the, the police could, but the politicians, you don't think that it came from a place of the mayor and others in power being afraid of being called nasty names if they did that? No, I think it was, to me, and I mean, I know this sounds conspiratorial, I think it was just some kind of um, test. I think that was some kind of, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to see how it works out. We're going to see how it plays out in the media. We'll see how it plays out in public opinion. And then we'll shut it down. I know people who went there and said it was more like a festival. Like they didn't see anything violent that was happening. I mean, obviously people got killed, but I mean, I wouldn't put it past the state sending people in there to, to do violence just to see. I mean, like it was in Minneapolis where you saw some guy breaking AutoZone windows who was obviously not one of the protesters. That was one of the oddest things I've ever seen. But you know, no one wants to look at that because then you're a conspiratorial lunatic. But you know, you'd rather believe the professional liars and the media and the <laughs> and politicians than actually look at that and go, yeah, that doesn't look right. Who is that? Is that a police officer? Is that someone undercover? You know, is that COINTELPRO? What is this? And as far as Portland, I don't know what Portland is. Portland is has been like this forever. I guess the politicians there are probably as nuts as the politicians in Minneapolis. I also think that voters tend to get what they ask for. So I have a hard time feeling bad when voters get what they ask for. And they seem to have Certain locales have seemed to ask for people who think that you know there's 150 genders and that that's more important than you know what a government should be doing, which is providing safety for uh, personal rights and property. I'm also an anarchist because I know that governments don't provide that. It's hard for me to look at Chaz or what's happening in Portland now and know exactly what's going on. But as far as civil war goes, I mean, if secession is on the table and it's serious, I think if more of a right-leaning place did it, you'd be more apt to see violence. 
But if California decided they wanted to secede and, and they were they were serious about it, I'm pretty sure they'd just be allowed to go. I've said this before. I mean, I don't care if California seceded. And it, at some point, I think that we need to build a wall around New York and just not let anyone out because the people who are in there are just too dangerous for the rest of us. The people in there are nuts. And anyone who wants to stay there is nuts. I'm with Jack Spierko on this. If you desire liberty and you know I'm, and I'm not talking about anarchy or anything that you can't have right now but just safety basically get the hell out of cities I feel like I'm too close to the city right now my wife has started working up at the at the foot of the Blue Ridge Mountains I'm trying to convince her to you know say hey you know do you want do you want to live closer to work so you don't drive 45 minutes an hour I'm willing to move up there (laughs) because I feel like I'm too close to Atlanta right now. And who knows what the hell's going on, man. But I think it could come to a point very soon where you're going to see a lot of people mass exodus from cities and you're really only going to see people going into cities to work and then leave. It certainly could be. And with the increasing availability of high speed everywhere, you could have a lot more people who are able to work from home, and that's becoming more the norm now anyway with the laws restricting uh, workplaces from getting together. I'm more skeptical about the retreat to X strategy. I think it's possible in the short run. In the long run, unless it's done in a deliberate way where you're going and forming a deliberate community that is going to push back, then I think all you're doing is buying yourself another year or two or three before two before it gets to the suburbs three before it gets to the exurbs and you know however many else before it gets to the completely rural places i think that preparing for this uh, for what's coming especially now that we're still in the state of uncertainty and not yet in the state of a particular kind of chaos like if you think about the chaos as the concretization of a failed state or a collapse and the uncertainty as this moment right now where it's not clear what way things are going to break, then it's also not clear what the best strategy is going to be. It certainly is the case that if you're in a more rural location and there are fewer people around, well, then it would seem like generally there's fewer people who can mess with you um, and you can defend your turf better. But in certain kinds of collapse, and this was the big thing that people missed in the 08 collapse that they didn't think about beforehand, is that risks can be correlated. And particular kinds of collapse can mean that the strategy that you thought of to, you know, to go find a little rural community, it may not be viable. It may, or it may not. We just don't know. And I guess that gets me back uh, to the idea that if there were a way to induce a particular kind of chaos, and I'm not suggesting this is a strategy, I'm just talking about it in a broad way, and there were a way to know what that looked like, then one could prepare for it. But to live in a state of uncertainty is to some extent to be unable to prepare for the future. Yeah, I think people, you know, what we're trying to do with the Unloose to Goose podcast, where the last episode was about setting up communities with like-minded people, try not to make them like Waco, where everybody's living on top of each other in the same building, but, you know, more spread out in the same area kind of thing. Um, I think there's safety in numbers, and I think that that's 
probably if if you think that that's a good idea and you're at that point now, then it's probably something to get on. I mean, if you're if you're extremely online and you're part of a huge community, I'm probably sure that if I put it out there that hey. Uh, I'm just looking to lease a couple acres in North Georgia, and I want to throw a double wide on there. I just need a water source and everything. I could probably get that done right now because I'm reaching that many people or someplace close. I think it's time. You know, people who call themselves libertarian or anarchist or whatever tend to be be individualist. But I think it's time that you you realize that everything you've seen over the past seven months, especially when you add in the riots and everything since the ending of May, it's time to find like-minded people and have a plan. I think that's probably the most important thing. You know, I think Jack Spierko would say, you just have to have a plan. You have to have a plan if things go bad. I think that's where I'm at right now. I don't see like a total collapse of the whole system of the United States and everything, but there can definitely be pockets. And I think that the pockets will be closer to big cities than out in the rural areas. It certainly seems to be starting there. And I think you're right that ultimately, perhaps the strategy, at least on a personal level, that's going to work under the broadest number of conditions is to have strong networks of other people who you can communicate with and depend on in certain circumstances. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Pete, thanks for coming on The Filter. Hey, man. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. You made me think on a lot of things and um, actually had to think through some things. So thank you. Sure thing. Where else can people find your work? Um, Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast. Pretty much search that anywhere, any podcatcher, any streaming service. A managing editor at Libertarian Institute go on there. We have great articles from all over the spectrum of liberty. If you go to themonopolyonviolence.com, you'll see that we have a hour and 45 minute documentary on what the state is and how we could live a better life without it. And the Unloose the Goose podcast just started. We had episode zero where Jack went over the the philosophy episode one, where we introduced ourselves episode two, talking about communities like we were just talking about right now. And if you like the work that I do and you want to support it, you can support it on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Mance Raider. And on my website, freemanbeyondthewall.com forward slash store. Um, you can even sign up for um, extra perks and everything there. And you can do it with cryptocurrency as well. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Filter with Matt Asher. You can find show notes at thefilter.org or follow user Matt Asher on the socials.